0: When most people think of the history of modern conservatism, they think of one man, Ronald Reagan. Yet this narrow view leaves many to question, how did Donald Trump win the presidency? And what is the future of the Republican Party? Throughout the years, the conservative movement has evolved from a network of individuals cultivating and institutionalizing a vision that grew over time, eventually having to cater to new pressures, balanced with its desire for mainstream acceptance. Our guest today argues that The more one studies conservatism's past, the more one becomes convinced of its future. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us this evening. I'm Kirsten Cullenberg, Director of Programs at the World Affairs Council of Dallas, Fort Worth. Welcome to our virtual program with Matthew Continetti, moderated by Eliana Johnson. A reminder to our viewers that you can purchase a copy of Matthew's book, The Right, The Hundred Year War for American Conservatism, online right now through our partners at Interabang Books. Go to interabankbooks.com to order from this fantastic local bookstore. If you aren't yet a member of the World Affairs Council, please join us. We'd love to welcome you to our community of engaged citizenry right here in DFW. Visit dfwworld.org for more information on membership options. I'd like to quickly recognize the council's new institutional partner, NEC Corporation of America, as we are so thrilled to have them on board with us as dedicated members, thank you. The council is committed to providing a safe environment for our guests at our in-person events. We have updated our mask policy to align with CDC standards and you can find out more information about our health and safety practices when we do operate in-person and our complete event list on our website. And now I'd like to introduce our moderator for this program this evening, journalist Eliana Johnson. Eliana is a regular presence on cable news and has appeared on NBC's Meet the Press, CBS's Face the Nation, PBS NewsHour, and ABC's This Week, among others. Eliana has worked as Washington editor for the National Review and for Politico as national political reporter. She is currently the editor-in-chief for the Washington Free Beacon, which was co-founded by our guest this evening, Matthew Continetti. And now, Eliana, I invite you to take it away. Lead us down a fantastic conversation. Thank you.
1: Thanks so much, Kirsten. Uh, I am honored to welcome uh, our guest this evening, a friend, a colleague, a journalist, and scholar who, in his new book, The Right, explores the evolution of conservatives and conservatism in the 20th century matt continetti is senior fellow at the american enterprise institute where he focuses on political thought and history he has been published in among other places the new york times the wall street journal the washington post and most importantly you can find his weekly column at the washington free beacon uh, matt is a frequent commentator on fox news uh, Brett bears uh, panel on special report and he often holds down the right wing seat on NBC's meet the press on Sundays, he is also a contributing editor at national review his book the right. Hundred Year War for American Conservatism, which you should all buy, um, is a sweeping and definitive account of the evolution of the conservative movement from the progressive era through the present. Um, Matt, I have lots and lots of questions to ask you about your book. And I thought about organizing this conversation. Uh, I wanted to ask you first about the history and then turn to uh, current events, specifically to Trump, I think, who is on, I'm sure, uh, all of our minds. Um, But first, I wonder if you could help us define our terms and some of the terms that you use in your book. Um, What is the right, what is the conservative movement and what is the Republican party for the purposes of the conversation that we'll have for the next hour?
2: Sure, thank you Eliana and thank you to the council for hosting me this evening, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, It is important to define one's terms and I spent a little bit of time doing that at the beginning of the book. The book is called The Right and what the right means to me is basically everybody who is opposed to the left (laughs) and these categories of left and right come to us from the French Revolution uh, and they have shaped our politics ever since. Within that broad category of the right, however, uh, there is uh, American conservatism, and specifically a post-war American conservatism. And it's my argument in the book that the right can include many groups um, opposed to the left, but who might also be opposed in some ways to what makes America distinctive, um, opposed to uh, constitutional uh, rule of law, Uh, opposed to the separation of church and state, um, opposed to our uh, free market economy. Uh, Unlike the American conservative movement, which comes into being after World War II, uh, which uh, was very much tied to America, a defense of America, a defense of our founding institutions, a defense of our rule of law, our civil society and of our market economy. So there's the right, then within the right, there's American conservatism. And then finally, there's the Republican Party. And of course, many uh, people view all of these terms as synonymous, but one of the lessons of my history is that uh, it was not always the case. And in some ways still is not the case. The Republican Party is a political institution. Uh, it was formed in 1854, it, of course, uh, came into prominence with Abraham Lincoln's election in 1860. Has a long history, uh, a history that predates post war American conservatism. And the Republican Party is really an institution that's going to be shaped and directed by the people who inhabit it. And for much of the first half of my history, uh, the people who inhabited and controlled the Republican Party did not identify with the post war conservative movement. And there's no reason to expect that the Republican Party would or will continue to be or will always be a vehicle for conservative ideas. It was gonna be shaped by the people in charge. So there's the right, there's the conservative movement that comes out of World War II, and then there's the Republican Party, which has always been a battleground for conservatives who want to use the Republican Party to shape America and the world, uh, as well as people who don't agree with conservatism, and then other forces on the right who may have principled disagreements with conservatism just from a different direction.
1: The subtitle of your book is The Hundred Year War for American Conservatism. And at the risk of collapsing your history into three minutes, can you give us like a brief overview of this war? Who are the participants in the war? And what are a couple of the most important battles uh, and turning points in this war. And finally, who has the upper hand in this war today?
2: Sure, um, I'll unpack that uh, question. So the book subtitle is uh, The War for American Conservatism. Well, why is it a war or why is it a struggle? That's well, it's because um, just as we defined our terms of the right, conservatives, and the Republican Party, within the conservative movement, Uh, there are a variety of points of view. There are some people who stress liberty. There are other people who stress tradition, but who still kind of found themselves united in the battle against communism in the 20th century. And so I I wrote this book in some ways to combat the idea that conservatism is one thing. Uh, It's not monolithic. It's not uniform. There are many different things. There are many different thinkers and they've always been in tension and sometimes in conflict with one another. So uh, when I start the book in the 1920s, the figures who I discuss, Presidents Harding and Coolidge, uh, some of the um, thinkers associated with the new humanism, H.L. Uh, uh, Mencken and Albert J. Nock, very famous journalists at the time, they didn't think of themselves as conservative. Uh, they felt they were just kind of standing for the status quo, what they assumed to be the standard way of doing things, definitely not the progressive way of doing things that was uh, embodied by the presidency of Woodrow Wilson. But people like Harding and Coolidge represented what they called Americanism, or what Harding called normalcy, very famously. It's not until after the New Deal, after Franklin Delano Roosevelt really changes the nature of the American social contract. GREATLY expands the size and scope of the federal government in unprecedented ways. That the people who come out of the tradition of Harding and Coolidge begin to think of themselves as conservatives because they found themselves defending what they saw as the inheritance of the Constitution against FDR's expansion of the executive branch, against decentralization centralization of power in Washington, D.C., uh, against the uh, extraordinary powers he gave to unelected bureaucrats and regulatory agencies. That's really how conservatism comes into being. But there's a big battle over foreign policy at the end of World War II. And what this is one of the decisive moments in my history where the pre-World War II right had been very isolationist. Uh, they are what I call following the Professor Alan Lichtman Uh, disengaged nationalists. They were American nationalists. They believed in American strength. They believed in American military might, but they were disengaged from the world. They thought involvement in the world would only bring America problems. After World War II, because of the threat of communism, the right switches its foreign policy to one of engaged nationalism. And you see through Uh, a debate, intellectual debate on the right, through the creation of new institutions on the right, American conservatism in the post-war years really transform itself into um, a a uh, a tough-minded, forward-leaning anti-communist force, supportive of alliances like NATO, supportive of deploying American forces um, overseas, uh, supportive of uh, free trade, in order to grow our allied economies. Um, That's the key struggle. But I would say another key struggle that develops throughout the course of the book is the dynamic between um, conservative institutionalists or elitists and conservative populists. So on the one hand, you have conservatives who think that the way to best shape America is to retain credibility with the mainstream, to basically change the opinions of the elites who inhabit our positions of authority in our key institutions, political, economic, cultural, social. On the other hand, you have the populists, the people who believe that the experts are ruining everything, who the people who believe the experts don't actually understand um, that America is not ruled from above, that it's driven from below. And uh, there's a suspicion uh, of elites and of that type of gradual uh, um, you know, shaping of opinion that the intellectuals want to uh, pursue on the part of the populists. And so I trace several moments in the course of my history, a recurring cycle of uh, occasional co- cooperation between the intellectuals and the elites and the populist grassroots, but then um, also conflict And just to bring it to the present moment, uh, as you mentioned in your question, I think beginning uh, in around 2006, uh, the cooperation between the conservative elites uh, based in Washington DC primarily and the grassroots populace spread throughout the country uh, came to an end. And uh, I should say that um, President George W. Bush was, effective at synthesizing these two forces uh, throughout his first term in office. But in his second term, uh, that synthesis fell apart. Uh, And it was over issues such as social security, uh, personal accounts. It was over issues such as um, simmering discontent with the way that the war in Iraq was going. It was going badly, as we will will recall. And also, uh, primarily, Um, a revolt among uh, the grassroots right, the populist right over George W's proposal to liberalize American immigration law. And so I kind of trace the beginning of this rupture to that uh, era around 2006, 2007. It runs through the emergence of Sarah Palin in 2008. It runs through the Tea Party beginning in 2009. And of course it culminates in the Trump phenomenon which uh, we are still living through today.
1: I'm going to come back to a bunch of the uh, points you made. Um, You refer in your book to uh, a conventional narrative of the conservative movement. And um, write in your introduction that your your book pushes back against um, this so-called conventional narrative. Um, Can you talk a little bit about What is the conventional narrative that um, many of us who grew up, uh, you know, on the center right uh, learned about um, how the conservative movement came to be and where does your book depart from it?
2: Sure. Well,
0: Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb@dbu.edu. Uh
2: The story that the uh, American conservative movement tells it, itself um, is that um, there was no conservatism in America uh, prior to World War II, and that the post war conservative movement was the first self consciously conservative movement um, in American politics. And it, it was on the margins of American intellectual uh, discourse. It was on the margins of American politics coming out of World War II. And then slowly it built institutions in the 1950s. It helped nominate Barry Goldwater in 1964. It lost badly in 1964. But in 1980, with Ronald Reagan, conservatism came to power in Washington, uh, where it has remained uh, challenged, of course, sometimes out of power, uh, as it is now at the federal level, but still a huge force in American politics. And even if Donald Trump represented a a change, um, the post-war conservative movement has largely acclimated itself. Uh, to, to what Trump represents. Um, my issue with this uh, narrative is twofold. And I'll start with uh, the point first that it tends to kind of soften the edges. Um, it's, kind of, uh, it, it's kind of too pat. The fact is, is that uh, the history of the American right over the last 100 years, like all history, is extremely contingent. It's um, it depends on accident. Um, it was not inevitable in any in any way, shape, or form. And also, uh, conservatives uh, tend to downplay uh, the the sinister uh, elements within their movement uh, that have that have appeared from time to time. Uh, and so, my history um, tries to address that uh, weakness and point out um, some of the problems that American conservatives have faced uh, from within their movement over the course of the century. The second uh, reason uh, that I depart from that uh, conventional narrative is that uh, Ronald Reagan looms too large in it. Now, uh, I'm a huge Reagan fan. (laughs) My conservatism uh, draws a lot from Ronald Reagan's, but uh, I find that as I study the history of the American right, Ronald Reagan is a very unique figure. Uh, His personality was um, very unusual among um, um, the figures in the American right. Um, His principles uh, were slightly different than you find among many conservatives. He was much more future-oriented. He was much sunnier and optimistic uh, than conservatives, especially conservative intellectuals, have tended to be. Um, I don't
1: think anybody would uh, describe us that way, man. No,
2: probably not. I try to be yeah. so
1: optimistic. Uh,
2: so, so he's he's kind of strange, and even you know even his biographers have found it hard to really understand him. Um, so, and yet he looms so large in these stories. So I thought, well, you know, why don't we expand the cast of characters? And in order to do that, why don't we begin this history the right much earlier than most of the histories that have been written over the last few decades about the American right. Why don't we begin it in 1920? Why don't we begin it before the New Deal, before World War II? And when you do that, two things happen. The first thing is that Reagan is not the central character in the story. He's not the standard of, of the American right, right? He is one protagonist in the story, um, a story that contains many characters. And two, when you take a wider view, when you look at 100 years instead of say 75 years, you find that the Republican party of Donald Trump uh, in many ways resembles the Republican party of Calvin Coolidge. Now this is not to compare Donald Trump and Calvin Coolidge who were extremely different people, very different personalities, different backgrounds, certainly different governing styles. But if you look at the kind of political tonalities of their parties, there are some similarities. Calvin Coolidge's Republican party was protectionist. Um, It wanted to insulate America industry from the gales of creative destruction in the international economy. Calvin Coolidge's Republican party was restrictionist. It essentially uh, banned immigration to the United States uh, for 40 some years. Um, and uh, Calvin Coolidge's Republican Party was uh, skeptical of foreign intervention. Uh, Harding, who wins in 1920, really campaigns um, saying that he would restore normalcy. He's campaigning against Woodrow Wilson's proposal for the League of Nations. There's an idea on the American right um, coming out of the First World War that that was a terrible experience that should not be repeated. And so there was a reluctance on the part of many on the American right in the 1920s and the 1930s to become involved overseas. And so when you look at the party of Donald Trump today, uh, you see similar things. Uh, You see um, a return to protectionism, especially in the case of China, trade with China. You see um, uh, hawkishness on the border Um, a um, campaign against illegal immigration and you're beginning to see some proposals to reform legal immigration as well. And you also see a skepticism of foreign intervention uh, that may have slightly wavered uh, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But when you look at what Republicans uh, are willing to do um, uh, vis-a-vis Russia and Ukraine, you find that they are still skeptical of becoming directly involved in that conflict. So I, I'd say that's why my uh, narrative departs um, from some of the more uh, standard histories that have been produced over the years, many of which are very good and I recommend, uh, but my book I think needed to be a little bit different.
1: I wanna fast forward to and, and talk a little bit about Trump. Uh, you mentioned about 10 minutes ago, the, uh, the George W. Bush presidency as the uh, beginning, I think, uh, of uh, a rupture or estrangement between conservative elites and their voters and that culminated in uh, Trump's election. Can you uh, expound on that uh, a little bit? What do you mean by that? And um, how did it lead us to Trump?
2: Well, um, uh, there's always been um, Uh, some tension between um, the grassroots populists uh, who uh, live throughout the country and who are often responsible for putting Republicans in office and kind of the conservative journalists and policy wonks uh, who live in uh, Washington DC primarily these days, but earlier also New York City. With George W. Bush, as I was saying earlier, you know, he campaigned in 2000, and uh, presented himself throughout his first term, as uh, really uh, just one of the folks, as, uh, as a normal guy, remember, in the 2000 campaign, everyone was was uh, asking, you know, which candidate would you like to have a beer with, right, and that was a contest that W won, right, um, and of course, he was an evangelical Christian, his faith was deeply important to him as it continues to be. And so he seemed to be a bridge between the the grassroots um, and of course the establishment. You can't get more establishment than being a member of the Bush family, right? Um, Beginning in his second term, however, I think uh, some ruptures uh, occurred between um, what Bush was attempting to do and the sentiments of many grassroots populists around the country. Um, I, I focus on immigration uh, because I think it continues to be a huge issue that animates the right and populism on the right. And then this is an issue where George W. Um, took a different view than many of uh, many on his party who identified as conservatives, and, and certainly the popular the more populist right. Um, he wanted to uh, have border security, but he also wanted to liberalize immigration law and legalize uh, illegal immigrants who had been here uh, and not broken uh, other laws. Uh, This was not popular among the grassroots right. And um, you began to see uh, that the plan would go nowhere uh, because of the um, opposition on the grassroots right, which was Uh, extremely prevalent on the talk radio right. Uh, You also saw in 2008, something weird happen, which was, or perhaps unexpected. Uh, A gadfly candidate also from Texas, Congressman Ron Paul, emerges as um, kind of a YouTube sensation in the 2008 campaign Um, and really kind of a, a popular candidate among young people on the right in particular. And Ron Paul's issues, of course, were his opposition to the war in Iraq and his opposition to the Federal Reserve and the Fed. And at the time, many people uh, simply dismissed the Ron Paul Liberty Movement as kind of almost a vestigial uh, uh, tick uh, on the right, you know, uh, of that old right that I, pre World War II right that I talk about in my book. In retrospect, however, I think it was an important sign of simmering discontent on the right, in among the right grassroots, uh, toward Bush's foreign policy. The war in Iraq, um, beginning especially in two thousand and six, went south very quickly. Um, There was a sense that. Uh, of course, there had always, there had already been a discussion in 2002 within the right about whether the war was a good idea to, to begin with. And I get into that in the book as well. And the, the direction of the war in Iraq in those final years um, emboldened and empowered the critics of the war. Um, there was also, you could see with the Ron Paul movement, um, the return of many elements uh, on the grassroots that, um, conservative elites and conservative intellectuals had thought had been kind of uh, cabined off, uh, put away. But um, by the time you get to the end of the Bush presidency, you have two very important things happen. One is that John McCain selects Sarah Palin, the little known governor of Alaska, as his running mate in the campaign. And the effect on American politics of that nomination is seismic and deeply polarizing very much a preview of what was to come in American politics. And then you have the global financial crisis in September of 2008 and the onset of the Great Recession when we do know through academic research that uh, populism doesn't need uh, a bad economy to thrive, uh, but it certainly gains a lot of energy from bad economies. And so it was the combination of, I think, um, the final years of the Bush presidency and then the global financial crisis. And on top of that, Barack Obama's governing style um, during his first term uh, that really uh, uh, delegitimized that conservative conservative governing class which had come to power with Reagan and been consolidated under Gingrich and under the two Bushes um, in the eyes of many people on the grassroots right. And it uh, it led to the, the to the more much more populist right, the much more national populist right that we have today.
1: Matt, I covered the uh, Trump campaign, and uh, from my vantage point on the campaign trail, Trump looked like an aberration. Uh, but you write in your book that when you study the sweep of the right and the conservative movement, that Trump his candidacy and his presidency were not actually an aberration, that he does fit into the sweep of uh, American conservatism. Make your case.
2: Well, um, I would say he, he fits into the sweep of the American right that I, that I talk about in the book. Um, and then he, I'll get to the conservative part in a second. Um, I, I trace in my book moments where um, conservatives and the right were swept up uh, in um, populist moments uh, that uh, led to demagogic figures uh, and leadership. And so I discussed the McCarthy uh, moment and the second Red Scare uh, in the book. I spent a lot of time discussing the presidential candidacies of uh, Alabama Governor George Wallace and and what he represented um, and the populism uh, that he campaigned on Uh, in the late 60s and 70s, after he kind of had um, uh, uh, diminished the role of, you know, just explicit segregation and racism in his campaigns. I talk about Pat Buchanan and the real choice uh, that the Republican party faced in that period uh, between 1988, 1992, and also 1996, when Pat Buchanan runs again for the Republican nomination. About which direction the party would take? Would it take the part? Would try to go in the the Bush direction? Would it try to uh, expand that conservative governing class I talked about? Try to uphold um, a uh, international system that uh, relied on free and open trade and was underpinned by American military strength and our forward deployment of forces and alliance structure, or would it go in the direction Buchanan wanted it to go? which was protectionist, uh, which was uh, restrictionist, and which was uh, America First. America First, of course, was the, was the organization um, that uh, was uh, spearheaded by and um, whose main spokesman was Char- the aviator Charles Lindbergh um, in 1940 through 41, opposing American entry into the Second World War. It's Buchanan who rehabilitates that slogan Uh, in 1990 uh, during discussions of where American foreign policy should go at the end of the Cold War. And of course it's Donald Trump who also takes America first as his slogan beginning in 2016. So when you look at it from that point of view, there are many um, precursors to Trump Uh, even though Trump's personality is very unique. Um, If you look at the issues that he's uh, emphasizing and if you look at, of course, his the style of leadership yeah, he embodies, um, the fighter, the one who's not going to play by any rules, um, the one who's going, willing to um, uh, kind of go up to the edge, and also um, polarize and also attract these huge crowds. Um, there are there are definitely uh, antecedents for what Trump represented.
1: Should we understand Trump as a McCarthyite figure or uh, a George Wallace type figure?
2: Well, um, I I mean, I think he's different in some ways. uh, And even those two figures are different um, from each other. Maybe I think the way I would put it is we should see the reception to him in similar ways. So uh, I'll give you just a, a couple of examples. One was with McCarthy, Um, I discuss how um, supportive many of the founders of the post-war conservative movement were of uh, Joe McCarthy's um, campaign to root out communist infiltration in the executive branch of government. And I always uh, talk about how, if you read the issue of National Review Magazine, the main conservative journal that was published after McCarthy dies in 1957, uh, it's like a head of state has died. Uh, there are just huge um, pouring out of uh, support for McCarthy. And, and, and very interestingly, the intellectuals make a similar case for McCarthy that intellectual supportive of Trump would make it for Trump, which is that he's not right all the time. Sometimes he's counterproductive, but on the big issue, the issue of communism and its threat, he was right. And so you see that, I think, today as well. Uh, with defenses of President Trump. You know, maybe he goes too far. He doesn't have the right personality sometimes. He exaggerates of course, but he's right about America and his view of America and it's under threat. Um, With Wallace, it was very interesting for me to study um, the reception of Wallace on the American right uh, during the 1970s. Again, after Wallace had just dropped the explicit um, support for segregation and whenever national review criticized wallace which it did often because national review was critical of wallace's populism uh, there would always be letters saying that they would cancel uh, subscribers canceling their subscriptions and also um, letters saying you know the thing that you kind of um nerdy intellectuals in new york don't understand about george wallace is that he fights he fights and of course, the, the thing that many people who support Donald Trump today will say is well, the thing that you nerdy intellectuals in Washington, D.C. don't understand about Donald Trump is he fights. So I'm not saying that he is the same person or that he's standing for the same things as those individuals. What I am saying is that the reception to him uh, has uh, uh, very interesting parallels with the reception of. Um, of those other individuals on the American right. And then just as an asterisk, and since I promised to get to this, the interesting thing about Trump is that um, many members of the conservative movement had great doubts about whether he would be a conservative. And those doubts were largely settled in Trump's favor um, uh, once he began his presidency. And the irony about Donald Trump, this national populist leader, this guy who doesn't Really, you know, conform to any of the niceties or the Marquise of, Marquess of Queensbury rules is that uh, he largely put into place the agenda that the elite conservatives had wanted for a long time. If you think about his two lasting accomplishments as president, they were the tax reform uh, that was a long standing sub- goal of the supply side economists, as well as uh, Paul Ryan, former House Speaker Paul Ryan. And it was his change of uh, the federal judiciary, including his three Supreme Court appointments, which was a longstanding goal of the Federalist Society, the conservative legal movement, and Senate now minority leader, uh, Mitch McConnell. Uh, so I think many conservatives found themselves very pleased with the way that Trump governed as president, which is why he, he did gain many votes uh, in the 2020 election, uh, just not enough to, to win.
1: I want to ask you one more question before turning it over to the audience and taking some questions from them, uh, Matt? You've been very outspoken uh, in your criticisms of Trump, particularly around uh, his conduct on January six. Um, both of us have uh, a lot of reporter friends, and um, many of my friends covering the uh, covering the both the Biden White House and. Uh, former President Trump and his orbit, uh, they think Biden is gonna run again and they think Trump is gonna run again. And my final question to you is, um, is there anybody on the right who you think could mount a serious challenge to Trump in a Republican primary? And what would your uh, advice be to uh, other Republicans who are not named Trump looking at presidential runs? Um, Do they have a shot?
2: You know, it's funny. um, I've seen reports, in addition to the ones that you mentioned, that uh, Bernie Sanders might might run again, and even that Hillary Clinton is kind of out uh, there, kind of um, snooping around, seeing if there's an opportunity for her to make a return, which means essentially we've been stuck in time since 2015. We've been frozen in place politically, and we're just, it seems, destined to relive the 2016 cycle over and over again. It also means that we're still in the Trump era. I thought that era ended uh, on January 6th, 2021, I was wrong. Um, And Trump remains the central figure in the Republican party. The question is just how far does his influence run? he had a very good week last week. His um, Supreme court appointments were part of this majority that signed on to Justice Alito's draft opinion overturning Roe v. Wade. We don't know if it's the final opinion. I think that's one reason Trump hasn't been bragging about it is that he's waiting to see if it's the final opinion. But if it is the final opinion, that is um, the greatest success of the conservative legal movement in its 40-year history. On top of that, uh, Trump um, endorsed the winning candidate in the very competitive uh, Ohio Senate primary, J.D. Vance. And so he can boast that he picked the winner of the Ohio primary. However, if you look at the primaries that were held yesterday, he kind of had a split decision. His candidate, he endorsed, won a House primary in West Virginia, and yet uh, his candidate in the Nebraska Republican governor, governor's primary didn't win, and he had gone after um, Representative Don Bacon for Bacon's support of the bipartisan infrastructure deal, and Bacon won. So uh, that's a split decision. And we're going into a primary next week in Pennsylvania that many people are paying attention to. That looks like a dead heat right now. And if anything, it seems as though um, the anti-MAGA establishment candidate. So, so there's an establishment Republican candidate. Then there's the MAGA establishment candidate, Dr. Oz. And now there's like an anti-MAGA establishment candidate. She's MAGA, Kathy Burnett, but she's not part of the MAGA establishment she just seems to be surging right now. And Trump did not endorse her. Um, So there's the sense that maybe even some parts of the MAGA movement are outpacing Trump. What that suggests is perhaps he's not quite as influential as he might appear. Um, He's frozen the field in place. However, I think there are several Republicans who are considering a run for president no matter what Trump decides. And I think, there is a potential that he could lose a primary. Um, I don't think it's a great potential, but I do think it's a potential. I look at somebody like Governor DeSantis of Florida, someone who I think shows a lot of Trump supporters a way to actually implement a Trumpian agenda of attacking the cultural power centers of the progressive left, and doing so in a way that seems to be effective, uh, whether, the agenda holds up in court or not it's enough for the um the populist grassroots they really like desantis and i think trump himself is kind of wary of desantis i think that's the biggest challenge right now um but uh this cycle could also bring new names to the fore we just don't know of course trump benefits from a divided field and many people um overlook the fact that Trump did not win a majority of the votes in the 2016 Republican primary. He won about 45% of the votes, but that was enough to win a majority of the delegates because the field was so fractured. And in a fractured field that doesn't consolidate behind one non-Trump alternative, I think the advantage is to Trump in his renomination in 2024.
1: Matt, you just touched on this with your reference to Governor DeSantis and the way he has shown um, a voters that he will fight on cultural issues. Um, you When you talked about the emergence of the conservative movement post World War II, um, it was about pushing back on the size and scope of government, and particularly on the New Deal agenda. That is not really uh, where the right or conservatives are fighting now and you talk about a transition from battles over the size of government uh primarily post-world war ii to battles over cultural issues and i wonder if you could talk a little bit about why you think um the focus of uh those political battles has shifted to the cultural battles that are at the center of our politics today
2: Well, um, one reason is that our values are just uh, contested and have been uh, since the late 1960s. And um, it seems to be that every 30 years or so, we go through a a moment of, since the 60s anyway, every 30 years we go through kind of this cultural uh, reevaluation of um, which values should be uh, supreme. Uh, What does it mean to be an American? Um, Who gets to be an American? Um, I think it's also has something to do, Eliana, with the changing nature of the Republican party. The Republican party today is largely composed of people who benefited from the new deal, who benefit from some of the great society programs like Medicare and Medicaid, There's there's less of a desire on the part of these Republicans to challenge things like social security, unemployment, insurance, Medicare and Medicaid. They're more interested in the cultural agenda. They are more, they become Republicans because they're rebelling against the uh, progressive left and its political correctness. Donald Trump understands that. He never wanted to tackle the Paul Ryan agenda, say, of reforming social security and Medicare. I noticed that President Biden recently attacked Senator Scott of Florida, someone else who was thinking of running for president in 2024 and uh, attacked him specifically on his proposed, uh, those sketchy, uh, entitlement reform plans in the agenda he released. That's something Donald Trump wouldn't do. That's something that J.D. Vance wouldn't do, the Republican nominee in Ohio. So I think as a combination of those two things, uh, one, the kind of recurring cycle of debate over values, and two, the changing composition of the Republican party and also of, of course of the Democratic Party as well, right? The Democratic Party now primarily composed in its upper echelons of a highly educated, um, uh, upwardly mobile um, uh, men and women who are connected in some ways with the uh, commanding heights of our economy. So the university sector, the nonprofit sector, entertainment, culture, media. Um, they they have a set of values that they that they desire um, to be supreme as well. Uh, for those reasons, um, we've we've shifted the terrain of our debate. We're not fighting over rolling back the Great Society, rolling back the New Deal. Um, we're fighting over what does it mean to be American? What should our view of America history should be? Um, uh, what is America's place in the world? Um, and who gets to be an American.
1: Okay, we have audience questions rolling in, uh, so I'm going to turn it over. Uh, Question from Bethany. Do you think Republicans who don't support Trump will continue with the GOP to try and keep the party from splitting more?
2: It's a very interesting question. Um, I think many of those Republicans will return to the fold in 2022, and I still expect Uh, this to be a good year for Republicans. There are gonna be races where candidates make gaffes that uh, lose the race for the Republican candidate. Um, But I think in the main, uh, it's shaping up to be a very good year precisely because uh, Republicans who uh, may have serious doubts about Trump, uh, he's not on the ballot so that they they can vote against Democrats. In 2024 though, I think you would see a similar effect That we saw in 2020, which was that the Republican Party ran ahead of Donald Trump in both 2016 and 2020. The senators who were elected in both of those cycles earned more votes than Donald Trump did. The House candidates, we picked up uh, over a dozen seats, the GOP in 2020, they ran ahead of Donald Trump. Glenn Youngkin, the new governor of Virginia, he ran ahead of Donald Trump in Trump counties in southwestern Virginia. Um, The voters who don't like trump and who voted down ballot for republicans in 2020 but left that top space blank which cost trump the election trump would have to do a lot to convince them um and the, his opponent would have to do a lot to convince them uh to to uh, earn his vote again it's different running for the first time against hillary clinton in 2016 when um Hillary Clinton is is just slightly less unpopular than you are if you're Donald Trump. And she represents the establishment in the change election. And running against in 2020, when many people, independents, suburban voters, they were just tired of the drama. They just wanted the drama to stop. Now, of course, I think they have buyer's remorse. Um, They don't don't like the way that Biden is governing because Biden didn't recognize that he got an anti-mandate. He didn't get a mandate to be FDR. He got a mandate not to be Donald Trump. That's an anti-mandate. But faced with Trump again in 2024, I think um, a lot would have to change for those voters to to come back and put Trump back in the White House again. I'm not saying it's impossible. uh, I've learned my lessons. Uh, But uh, I think it would be be hard.
1: Next question is, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right, from Kais. What, in your view... Is the biggest internal and external threat to modern conservatism?
2: Well, um, uh, the biggest external threat to um, modern conservatism, that's a very good question. Um, you know, uh, conservatism has always had to deal with cancellation, um, it, it's always had to deal with liberal media bias. This is a long running fight. That the right has had in American politics, and I trace that in my book. Nothing new there, but um, you know, uh, it, the, the uh, dearth of conservative professors, in particular, I think, is a huge problem. One of the reasons I wrote this book is that I teach this material and have for half a dozen years, and at one at the end of one course i asked my students what surprised them about the course and a student raised his hand and he said i'm surprised that any of this exists he had never really known about national review and all its internal battles or all the conservative magazines that have existed all the great conservative books like russell kirk's books or whitaker Chambers' books he didn't know about what supply side economics actually was the theory behind it the books that were written to expound it Uh, and so young people don't have access to these ideas in in a way that they even had uh 20 years ago say uh, just because those professors are gone that might point them in that direction you can still find it online but it takes some work and it's easy to get distracted by the noise so maybe i would put that as an external uh threat um and the internal threat uh, though is in um in falling into bad habits and in falling into conspiracy theory in particular, um, falling into scapegoating, uh, 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 falling into um, support for a, a strong man and, and not respecting the constitution. There's no American conservatism without the American constitution. And we need to adhere to that document above all if we're to call ourselves conservatives in America.
1: Matt, Raymond asks, uh, and I know you'll have views on this, whether there are similarities between Republicans and Democrats with respect to uh, foreign policy, sending troops overseas, bringing the troops home, and so on. And I would just add, if so, uh, what, are the, what are the similarities? Are we seeing a convergence um, or a bipartisan moment um, on the right and left?
2: Well, to the degree that we're seeing a bipartisan moment at the right now, as we meet, um, it's a bipartisanship in support of internationalism. Um, the, the, if you look at the main uh, s- stream of both parties in Congress, they are very supportive of American support for Ukraine. Uh, they uh, they want they just passed the, the latest tranche of aid, the Lend-Lease. Um, so that I think is reassuring Uh, for those of us who think that America is a force for good in the world and America needs to support um, uh, uh, small countries when they are attacked by tyrants. Um, Foreign policy is an unusual thing because there's cross cutting pressures. Um, you You can have a wide range of foreign policy views in both the democratic and Republican parties. So in the democratic party, you have say Bernie Sanders on one end and Chris Coons on the other. And in the Republican Party, you have you know um, a hawk like uh, Tom Cotton on one end, and you have Rand Paul on the other, right? Um, so I would say though that uh, there is definitely um, a, a, there was prior to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, a growing consensus uh, in favor of non-interventionism, in the sense that uh, we we America should not be involved in the world as much as it had been in the 1990s and early 2000s um but you know as i said at the outset of our conversation history is contingent history is unplanned accidental and occasionally random and i have been surprised and struck uh in the weeks since the months now since the russian invasion um that um the public continues to support uh ukraine doesn't want to become directly involved but does, does support America's continued aid to Ukraine in its resistance against the Russian invasion.
1: Matt, Jack asks whether you think Trump's conviction, uh, if it happens, on either uh, sexual attacks on women or fraud in business transactions would derail him or would his populist base overlook it? Um, not sure they're mutually exclusive, but uh, but go ahead.
2: Uh, Well, I think Trump was right when he said uh, back in 2016 that he could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and his base would still be with him. He's always concerned about being right with the base and um, that core support that follows him around the country, um, that does the boat parades and the truck convoys in support for him, they'll always be behind him. Do you think, though, uh, his continued legal problems, um, if they continue? Would, would pose uh, an, a problem with him in the sense that, you know, those Republican primary voters who I say might support Trump and thought he was a good president, an effective president, support the Trump agenda, such as it was, the combination of more traditional conservatism along with the national populism issue and that and most importantly, probably that fighting spirit, that, that willingness to go on the offensive, especially against the liberal media. Um, they might say, look, Trump, he had his moment. Uh, We need to find another guy in the mold, but who just doesn't have that baggage. I've heard that from many Republicans in recent weeks. Um, uh, So uh, continued legal trouble, would just I think maybe push a few more voters in that direction.
1: Matt, Mary asks whether you could talk about um, what you view as the dark side of American conservatism um, and particularly the tendency toward violence among uh, some Trump supporters. I'm guessing that's a reference to January 6th. Uh,
2: Of course. uh, I mean, I I think that was a a very visible manifestation of the dark side of the right. Um, I I, I trace several moments like this uh, in my book, Um, but for me and that we haven't really discussed it here, I do dwell on, the post-war conservative movement's opposition to the civil rights movement. This was unusual because um, the civil rights Republicans, Eisenhower and Nixon, passed civil rights legislation in 1957 and 1959. It was Republican senators who helped get the Civil Rights Act of 1964 across the finish line. And yet the founders of the post-war conservative movement uh, were uh, opposed to the to the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And um, some of them on frankly, racist grounds, not Barry Goldwater, who famously voted against it. He had constitutional concerns with the legislation. Um, but others, including William F. Buckley Jr., major protagonist of my uh, history, um, said some things that I feel uh, the conservative movement uh, has never really put behind him. Um, and I, 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 I feel as though that limited conservatives' appeal over time, its opposition to the civil rights movement, it didn't broaden it.
1: Last question, Matt, from Alfie. Um, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but if Roe is in fact overturned, um, what will the impact, do you think, be on the midterms?
2: I wish I knew, because then I could see the future and I'd be a rich man. Um, At the moment, I don't think it will be enough to overcome the declining standard of living in this country as a result of the inflation. Um, But I do think it will play a role in some Uh, Races, um, and it has the potential to be a major issue, but at the moment it has not risen in voter priority or voter intensity beyond the very active forces we see protesting outside of people's homes.
1: I see Kirsten's face popping back on the screen, which I know is my cue to turn it back over to her. Uh, Matt, thank you uh, so much for doing this. And uh, thank you to all of you for joining. This has been a wonderful hour.
0: And Kirsten, uh, I will hand it back over to you. Well, thank you very much, Eliana. You too, I could hear you talk for another hour. Matthew, i just learning from you. Thank you very much for joining us this evening. Um, a quick reminder to our audience that you can purchase copies of Matthew's book, The Right, The Hundred Year War for American Conservatism online right now through our partners at Interbank Books please visit interrobainbooks.com to order from this fantastic local bookstore right here in our backyard. If you're not yet a member of the World Affairs Council, please join us. Visit dfwworld.org for more information on membership and programs that we have coming up.